The Money Cafe is proudly brought to you by InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts. Diversified portfolios of ETFs with a capped fee. T's and C's apply. Find out more at investsmart.com.au. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, it's interesting that uh, Kelly Bayer, some Rosemarin, mm. and Sam Altman of OpenAI got fired at about the same time. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, uh, I presume Kelly... Kelly uh, resigned. Resigned, although yes. she jumped before she was pushed, I presume. Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. Yes, I think it was uh, it was framed as her decision, but I'm sure there was lots of negotiations going on in the background. Yes, and um, I, I, I don't know if you've done this, but if you go on the in the Singtel website, the Singapore Telecom website, yeah, and look at their management structure, right? Uh, Kelly Rosemarin, uh, Bayer Bayer Rosemarin, Rosemarin yep. is right up the top next to the CEO of Singtel. Yeah, yep. You know, so just in terms of the optics of it. The the opt the Optus CEO job is very important. Absolutely, in Singtel, yep. yep, tremendously important. So yep. I imagine they're going to send someone down from Singapore to run the place for a while. Yeah, well, they've input, they've got the CFO in there at the moment. Um, it'll be interesting. You know, I think uh, they went for someone with broader experience in Kelly. You know, she was at Commonwealth Bank before that, management consulting before that. Uh, so do they go for someone with a bit more hardcore tech slash telco experience? I don't know. I've got no idea. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a tough one, and and they need, in some ways, they need someone who can be. Um, do they need someone who can be not seen for the next three years and just get on with I, rebuilding I mean, the I, joint? I read in the Financial Review. I've, I've kind of forgotten this. That her, her predecessor, Alan Liu, was sent down from Singapore. Yeah, he was also yeah. to solve a crisis at the time. Yes, and I don't remember what the crisis was. Oh, that predecessor he solved. Was, yeah, Alan Liu. Yes, that's true. And but, then before that was Paul O'Sullivan, who's now the chairman of the place, also chairman of ANZ. So. Yeah, they've had different styles of CEOs. I can't remember what the crisis was either. Um, but, but, but yeah, anyway, yeah, I mean, apparently he he solved it, whatever it was, and this that's what's going to have to happen now because because they're losing customers to Telstra and yes. TPG. Yeah, so they've got you know they've got a real lot of work to do. They do, yeah, and this is you know this is. We forget sometimes Australia is a small island, and things get concentrated in the hands of a couple of big players. And the, because of their size and scale, when something goes wrong at one, things fall apart, and and the, the ramifications are big. So I mean, th- 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 this will be interesting. Yes, interesting to see who replaces them. And what about OpenAI? Now, I, I think uh, it's a really strange <laughs> company. OpenAI because it's it's supposedly a not for profit. It is a not for profit. And not it, supposedly, it's well, it is a not for profit <laughs> except that it's making tons of money. Yeah, and it's worth eighty six billion dollars. Yes, right. So it's a strange not for profit. And what appears to have happened here is we've got a four person board who have this sort of non for profit ethos, and then a. Entrepreneurial CFO, CEO, sorry, and Sam Altman, who has a quite a different ethos, has orchestrated this deal with Microsoft, um, and 
then the relationships have blown up. I mean, I find it really interesting. AI is about replacing people, and here we have an example of how everything's about people all the time. Yeah, that's <laughs> this right. This is all about real people with real egos and real But it's interesting that, that Microsoft is now cleaning up because they're hiring. Oh, They've yeah. hired Sam Altman and Greg Brockman. They have, yep. And uh, and all the, the entire staff of OpenAI are now saying, we're going to go to Microsoft too if you don't. Do I don't know what quite what they're demanding. Well, they're demanding the sort of the board departs. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and we've got both Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff and Microsoft saying to these people at OpenAI, "We will match your salary and stockholdings come across." So everyone's now trying to grab all the talent. Right? Again, it's about people. It's not necessarily about the technology. I don't know if Microsoft is a winner here. I don't know. They might end up having to take control of OpenAI, which is, as we've just said, this weird mix of a thing. Yeah, but they just take over its technology. They just take over ChatGPT, right? Maybe. They maybe. wouldn't keep it going as a not-for-profit. But I, I think – I wonder if the arm's-length relationship that they had was actually a, not a bad thing. Now if something stuffs up with chat – previously if something stuffed up with chat GPT and it does stuff up and has these hallucinations, it's OpenAI's fault. Now it's Microsoft's fault. So th- there, was a, there was sort of a fire break in there, which was quite – could have been quite helpful. Now d- is that outweighed by the control of the technology? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I wonder whether a lot of this has to do with the, uh, the statement that was signed in May – uh, by 350 AI techs and scientists and academics about the extinction threat of AI yeah. and that it should be treated like nuclear weapons and pandemic. Yes. Uh, and it was signed and, in fact, possibly instigated by Sam Altman, signed by Sam Altman, Altman yeah. and a few people at OpenAI, uh, but Sachin Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, didn't sign it. No. And Facebook, there was no one from Facebook or Google who are on it, and I wonder whether there's now a, a bit of a, uh, a, a I don't know, a, a wedge opening up between those who are worried about AI and those who aren't. Yes, although I'm a little cynical about this idea of, you know, that people like Sam Altman want to want the government to step in and regulate AI, because what will that regulation eventually be? It'll be, well, we trust you, Sam. So we'll put we'll we'll make you one of the, the the selected people who can sort of control this architecture. Oh, and we won't let too many comp- competitors in who might be nasty. And all of a sudden, you get the power concentrated sure. in the hands of very few. I mean, it is worth noting that that after they signed that statement in May, that it was the threatened extinction yes. of the human race. Yes, they didn't slow down. <laughs> That's right, clearly. <laughs> but I think I think that has you know. There has been some – part of it has been questions about the safety of AI versus the speed with which you want to develop, but th- that horse has surely bolted. <laughs> well, sure, they're all, they're, all, they're all going at full speed. Yeah. You know, they're all launching new versions of AI. Yeah, uh, it is interesting though. Like, you know, obviously AI fervour has driven the US stock market particularly this year. Yeah. We're yet to see any of the great fruits of the – uh, of that AI boom, we haven't seen it really. No, no. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, pump I, up profits yet. I, I actually I use I use AI every day. Me too, uh, and it's great. 
I don't use it to write my stuff for me, but I do use it to find stuff out. Um, so, you know. I, mean, I use uh, it to transcribe interviews and that sort of stuff. It's a fantastic, invaluable tool. Yeah. Absolutely invaluable. Yeah, so, yeah. but, I, I, yeah, uh, you know, we pay a little bit for those services, but not not heaps. So anyway, it uh, it's so much to play out, but what what great fun! And I, and I and I reinforce that point. Like this is all about the robots going to come and kill us and take over our jobs and our lives. Isn't it funny that it comes down to a bunch of thirty to forty to fifty year old men, and they're mainly men, you know, battling over each other's egos and who's got control and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Just just funny. Just before we get on to questions, let's talk about interest rates. Now, you were at the ASIC forum yesterday and Michelle Bullock appeared. Yes, she uh, did. And she was, uh, I think, in, in fact, she was questioned on, on stage by your predecessor, Tony Boyd, she was, was she yeah. not? Our predecessor. Yes. No, well, he was oh, senior. He was Yours senior. That's true. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, how did that go? What did she say? Anything interesting? Oh, I thought a couple of interesting things. Tony asked her what she's optimistic about. And the thing that I thought was actually a really good point that, you know, um, perhaps isn't enunciated enough, the, the gains in the labour market, yes, the labour market's hot and that's probably not helping with inflation, but she, her point was that it's the way that – it's the style of the strength of the labour market, I guess. Women, uh, young people, people who um, might have a disability, lower education standards – they have been drawn into the employment market. They've been able to access the employment market in a way that they couldn't before. And, you know, her, she made the point, this is, that's a great thing that th- those people can participate in the labour market and she's confident we can hold on to those gains even as the economy slows. So that'll be interesting. Her other point was about inflation. Everyone's saying it's about supply side things, so rents and petrol, and we get lots of questions. What can actually interest rates do about that? She was... Very strong on this. You're seeing this wrong. It is still about underlying demand. Underlying demand is still strong and we are trying. That's what we need to whack. And you read the RBA's minutes that came out, you know, half an hour after she was speaking, and that's the flavour of the minutes. What about the uh, the effect on demand of immigration, which is a supply of people? She was pretty sanguine. I actually I asked her about that. She was pretty sanguine about it, I thought. Like, she was saying, yes, there's a problem at the moment. Um, she sort of portrayed it as recovering the surge, uh, the, recovering the, the COVID deficit of immigrants um, and said, you know, we're basically getting back to trend, so don't worry too much about that. There's a lot of... Uh, international students who've been allowed to stay a bit longer, that'll wash out of the system. The problem is that we don't have the infrastructure for the surge at the moment. Um, But, you know, there's supply. It is both a supply and demand factor. So everyone's seeing the demand factor, rents going up, you know, do we have enough places for people to live? But no one's thinking about the supply to the labour market, which she says is still important. So... I didn't get the sense that she's feeling it's the economic shock that others are feeling or perhaps she's just being polite because what can she really do about it? And what did you think of her overall? I actually thought she really came alive at the optimism question and and I've never seen her in a panel format and she was really engaged and, you know, thoughtful and, you know, someone asked the question, is monetary policy, does monetary policy still work Um, given that, you know, it's all about, the uh, 
given you know it's the it's the mortgagees who are getting whacked and there's still older people rushing around spending and she was sort of saying you know of course monetary policy works you can see it working in the US where there's fixed mortgages and that transmission channel's not as strong so of course monetary policy still works and is still relevant so oh, yeah oh, I was impressed she she was she was a good good panelist to have excellent let's do questions let's do it before we do that let's have a word from our sponsor InvestSmart's Professionally Managed Accounts is a digital wealth platform with diversified investment portfolios overseen by Australia's most trusted finance experts, including Paul Clitheroe, Effie Zahos, and the Money Cafe's Alan Kohler. Join thousands of Australians growing their wealth through InvestSmart's managed portfolios. Check out investsmart.com.au for more information. Okay, first question from Dawn. What with what is playing out between Origin and Australian Super in five to ten years' time when industry super funds are considerably larger and will potentially yield more influence on the share market, how do you think this might impact retail shareholder and active fund manager returns? Dawn, this is a question that I am thinking about all the time and I spoke to someone at the ASIC forum yesterday, a very important person who you run into, and I was I, I noted with interest that they too are thinking – and the line they gave me was, I wonder if we thought through all the implications of superannuation when the system was designed. Did we realise the super funds would get this big and have this much cash flowing into them? $20 billion a year is flowing into Australian super. And that is what's at the heart of this origin uh, Australian super debate. Every second... $631 flows into the Australian super coffers that they need to figure out how, what to do with. And that gives them an enormous amount of power. So once upon a time, I, I think the super funds were sort of um, content to go along with the market. But now they are of a size where they can run their own race. So they're looking at Origin Energy and saying, we don't need to accept this price. We are happy. Everybody's saying, you know, can Origin Energy... Can Australian super really afford to fund Origin Energy's transition needs over the next X number of years? Yes, with $20 billion flowing into this thing every year, they can stump up for every capital raising for the next decade. They could buy the thing if they really wanted to. I mean, I don't think we're getting our heads around the implications of that. Australian super is not thinking like an ordinary investor. Ordinary investors love to say they're all Warren Buffett and they think long-term and all that sort of thing. They don't. Most of them are very short-term in focus, but Australian Super is genuinely looking at this and thinking, what's the best thing, what's the best way to own Origin Energy for the next 50 years? And there's not many investors thinking like that and it's, cha- it's going to change the market. I think, it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating. What does it mean for retail shareholders and active fund managers? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I think the broad brush of this is that more assets will go private, more great companies will go private. You mean privately Pro- owned by pri- super funds? Own, own, privately owned by super funds or others. I mean, that's the trend around the world. <clears throat> and I worry that retail investors will have less great companies to invest in, but they'll have access to that through their super funds. So maybe it sort of um, active manager returns. I don't know. I think active management is under super, super pressure. These guys generally don't beat the market. They generally charge higher fees than index funds. 
Uh, and super funds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a great study in the US that's just come out that says, looked at a big pension fund over there called CalPERS. And, you know, CalPERS does all this great research and great asset management. And this research concludes they would have been better just stick it all in an index fund. Yeah. You know, all that wasted time and effort and money. So uh, this is a big change. Well, to all the super market. funds are charging less than 1%. Yeah. And all the active managers charge more than 1%. Well, pretty much all yeah. of them. Most of them. <laughs> yeah. Often a lot more. Often a lot more. Jamie says, uh, Treasury data reveals overseas buyers are flooding back into Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane markets. Approvals by government are up 40% in the past quarter. Australian buyers cannot compete against cheap money from foreign investment. Is it not time politicians stop passing the responsibility of housing control uh, onto Australian mortgages with higher interest rates? Now, Alan, you're... Um, Perfectly placed to answer this because well, uh, your quarterly essay on housing is coming out next Monday. That's right. I actually, in that quarterly essay, do not deal with foreign buying of Australian housing yep. at all. Right. Because uh, it's not that relevant, you don't reckon? No. Yeah. I mean, there's not much of it. Uh, I mean, just look, to some extent, I guess, in, in a lot of auctions, they're the marginal buyer uh, in the sense that you know, maybe they're driving the price up sometimes, yep. but I don't think there's there just isn't that much of it. There isn't enough of it. I don't think it's. The, I mean, the main problem, you know, in terms of foreign buyers is is immigrants. Yeah. Who are here? Yes. Living here, I just don't think there's much buying by people living overseas. If that's what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. And anyway, the Australian dollar is reasonably strong. It's not as if it's fifty cents. Yeah. I- yeah, I'm not sure how cheap the money from foreign cheap how cheap money is overseas. Yeah, that's either. what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not, you know, like it's yep. uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of currencies that certainly no one from Argentina is buying Australian property with pesos. Yeah, <laughs> I think broadly this immigration question is going to get more mm. heated though. Um, I think we've got other questions about it, or at least one other question yeah. about immigration. So we'll perhaps get onto that sure. then. Christopher says, why is it so hard to get a market return, market rate of return on SMSF deposits? This is compared to personal deposits. Some banks don't even offer accounts for SMSFs. I speculate that it's because there are additional reporting requirements on SMSFs, and I can't believe that they are so so onerous. Yeah, this uh, is a surprise to me. Uh, um and I, I'm, I don't know a whole lot of, hell of a lot about SMSFs, Alan, so you might have to help me out here. But w- do you need a special account to hold your money? Well, I don't. I mean, I've got a bank account uh, at NAB, which yep. is the account for my for the trustee of my, my SMSF. Right. And it's just an ordinary account. Yeah, that's what I would have that's thought. It's not an SMSF account, it's just an account. Yeah, right. So I don't know... Um, I mean, it's uh, perhaps perhaps it's different if the if the fund itself has a bank account. But for me, it's the trustee. The, there's a there's a corporate trustee of the or you know a company. Yep. That's the trustee of the of the fund. Yeah. Uh, and that's got the account, so it's just a it's just an account. Might 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 need a, a bit more investigation that one, Christopher. Nathan says, love the podcast and love what Alan Sun does on TikTok too. In 2019, Bill Shorten proposed limiting negative gearing to new builds only. If this was implemented, in my view, it would have pushed investors to buy new properties and developers to build them. 90% of investors buy existing homes. This would have helped fix the crisis, housing crisis in two ways. 
First, it would have increased much-needed supply and pushed down rents. Secondly, house prices wouldn't have increased another 50% from May 2019 and we wouldn't have all, and we would all have much smaller loans to service and therefore the interest rate rises wouldn't be hurting as much. Do you guys agree with my view? Also uh, excited for your quarterly essay, Alan? Yes, well, um, uh, I do talk about this a bit in the, in the quarterly essay and uh, the Labor Party actually proposed it in 2016 and almost won. In 2016, yeah, and then they made the mistake of, in 2019, adding dividend franking to it. Yes, and then yeah. and the problem with that was that they don't know why they lost in 2019. Was it dividend franking or was it negative gearing? <laughs> yeah, and nobody knows. And yeah. so, so the Labor Party and everyone else dumped both ideas. <laughs> has to dump both ideas because they don't know which one lost the election for them. Yeah, um, but uh, actually, if you look at 2016. Um, and the gains that they made, um, despite having a policy to conf- confine negative gearing to new new houses and to cut the capital gains tax discount to 25% yep. instead of 50%, yep. um, you know, you could argue that that didn't lose the 2019 election for them. It was dividend franking. Anyway, mm. um, uh, I agree, Nathan, that if, they, if we did have negative gearing confined only to new houses... Uh, and the capital gains tax discount was halved to 25%, as proposed by the Labor Party, then that would have been a good idea. Yeah, yep. I think that that would have been a terrific idea. There you go. Well, um, okay, let's keep this rolling, um, because David's got a solution to the housing crisis too. Uh what if government announces the intention to commit to a 20-year strategy to bring the cost of housing down to, let's say, 20% of income? Now, you need bipartisan report, support, David says, but all future policies will be enacted and judged against this objective. Academics and public service would drive policy direction. If you've got a dog, you don't bark yourself. Would it ever be possible? Is it a, 20, is it a sensible suggestion? Uh, well, uh, as I point out in the quarterly essay, the problem... Uh, uh, so what's happened to housing is that it's gone from... Uh, the average median... The median house price has gone from... Uh, three to four times average income to seven to eight times average income yep. over the past 25 years. Yep. So uh, the multiple, the ratio of housing to income has doubled, which has been a massive shock mm. to society. Mm. And um, and David's right, roughly right with his, with his time frame that in order to get the ratio back to what it was, uh, house prices would need to stay where they are for ba- about 20 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that incomes could catch up. Yeah. And uh, I suppose what I'm saying, David, is that nobody's going to announce that. Yes. Because <laughs> because everyone wants house prices to keep going up. Yeah. Everyone's got a house. Well, most people have got a house. And everyone kind of likes it, them going up. Banks love them going up because yeah. the more house prices rise, the more money they lend and the more money they make. Uh, economists like it because of the wealth effect. Yep. Politicians like it because everyone's happy and votes for them. So uh, not only do the majority of people in the country want house prices to keep rising, so do all the powerful people. Yeah, yeah. And so... Self-interest. Uh, I just think, you know, the, the, the solution to housing affordability is for house prices not to rise for a while. But everyone wants house prices to rise. Yeah. I did notice... All the time. Uh, I did notice Louis Christopher's... Uh, he's a... Um, uh, a property analyst, his his fork. He got this year right. 
he predicted strong gains this year, and but next year much more muted gains, even a bit of a correction. So maybe we'll get one year of flat house prices. Yeah, but you know we had uh, one year. Of, <laughs> I, know, I know we, we had one year of twenty two percent rise in 2021 and then twenty twenty two fell by nine percent. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and we got it all back in. And about they've six all months. gone up in six months to the same event. <laughs> yeah, know, like it's just forget it. Let's go to Finn, Finn Alan. Finn. Uh, hi there, my name is Finn and I'm 13. Is it my turn? It's your turn. My dad asked me to listen to the Money Cafe every Saturday on the way to basketball. <laughs> poor bugger, Finn, that's terrible. Dad says roughly 90% of the money in the world is actually digital, sitting on screens and servers, and we only have around 10% in hard cash. My question is, how did the digital currency enter the economy? Did it originate as cash, or can the RBA create money without actually printing it? Last basketball game today, so perhaps I'll hear the answer next week whilst doing the gardening. Jeez, he has to – not only does Finn have to cop listening to the Money Cafe on a, on the way to basketball, but he has to do gardening. I hope he's getting up the pocket money. Oh, he's a good boy, Finn. I good hope the pocket Finn. money's uh, remuneration uh, sufficient. I, yep. Uh, well, the answer is uh, yes, the, the RBA can create mo- and does create money without printing it. It's yes. simply uh, – it, it hits a key on the keyboard and – Boom. Boom. It comes <laughs> it comes into existence. Yes. I always love that that great meme on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, you know, the money printer goes brr, but the money printer doesn't go brr. It's uh it's a button. <laughs> it's a button. It's, it's a very button. quiet and uh, there is I mean obviously still money is printed. Yeah. Um, but most money is created digitally and yeah. and I don't know about you Finn, well you're young but I don't carry Money in my wallet anymore? No, I've got I've got five bucks on it for emergencies, Alan. But that's about it. Yes. Um, Roberto says, can you explain what the broad economic implications would be if iron ore, if the iron ore price went below the federal budget estimate, and also what would happen to the A dollar, the Aussie dollar, and inflation? Uh, well, Pan- would there be pandemonium? pandemonium. Oh no! <laughs> because the, I mean, there probably would be because the iron ore budget estimate is fifty-five dollars US a ton. The iron ore price is sitting around one hundred and twenty, one hundred and fifteen. Yeah. Absolutely baffling to me. China's supposed to be in this sort of economic hole, and the iron ore price has held up unbelievably well. Yep. Anyway, it's been a long, 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 long time since. Uh, iron ore has uh, been, been at 55, 55 bucks. So, so how, if it got there again, it would be. So, how does the, the question, I guess, is how does Treasury get away with forecasting 55 bucks? Oh. Because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just it's such a manipulation, you know, such a. Um, uh, what's what's the what's the term? You know, um, under promising, under promising. It's, it's, it's a hollow log. It's it's a it's a hollow log in plain sight. I think it's unbelievable <laughs> the way they get away with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and what would happen? Um, uh, the Aussie dollar would fall because people wouldn't need to buy um, Australian dollars to get uh, to to invest in local miners for for one. And inflation should go down around the world, really, because steel and building products would be cheaper. Um, we'd be importing some of that inflation from Asia, so uh, would broadly and, help. And the budget deficit would rise. The budget deficit would rise, and governments would have to slash spending on all sorts of services. Because Basically. they wouldn't get as much in tax from BHP and Rio Tinto. Yes. So, um, and and yes, and their projections would look pretty awful too. Yeah. Because at the moment, that, that that low assumption helps their projections look miraculously better than expected every single year. Fantastic. I know. <laughs> 
Uh, your turn. S- Scott says, uh, I listen to this great podcast in the car with my kids. Oh, you might be Finn's dad. <laughs> <laughs> great education for all of us. Is there an in- independent... Not family or friends. Simple and cheap financial advice for elders. Not a financial advisor, but just a wise ear to run some questions by to make sure they're not being taken advantage of. My question is for my 74-year-old mum. This is a great question. I was think- I read this last night and I've been thinking about it. And I, I think the answer is no. Uh, there is not an independent financial advisor that you can go to by name. Now, you might have an accountant who can offer you some very general advice. Um, you can ring up your super fund if your mum still has one and she they could give some very general advice, not tailored to your mum's circumstances. But this is a problem in Australia that we have people like Scott's mum who don't want to shell out the five and a half grand for a full suite of statement of advice from a financial advisor, just want a bit of, does this sound right? type coaching well, uh, and we can't get it. The one thing I would say is that Scott Pape who wrote The Barefoot Investor yeah. uh, now well last time I spoke to him which was well, a while ago actually but um, he was working for Anglicare yep. which was a it's a phone in financial advice right. service Okay. Um, and uh, uh, but I th- it may be just crisis Counseling, yeah, I, I, yes. Uh, you know, it's, it may not be just something you ring up for a bit of advice. You've got to be in trouble. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm, I haven't gone into that, but maybe it's something worth worth looking but into. But this, this is why the advice. You know, we swung the pendulum hard back after the Royal Commission. We swung it too hard. We need coaches out there who can help people like Scott's mum. Everyone's going to retire with more and more and more super. The super funds need to be able to provide more advice. Mm-hmm. There needs to be more advisors in that intermediate range. And, yeah. and I think Scott's best thing is actually, sorry, Scott, but you're going to have to find a family or friend. Maybe it's a few steps removed from you who your mum, who's happy to take your mum's calls, basically. Hmm. Um, Qantas, uh, no, it's your turn, I think. No, uh, yeah, sure. Qu- uh, Joe says, Qantas is trading in a PE ratio, that's a price-to-earnings ratio, of five and had a record profit in 2023. Seems like a great investment. However, the $160 billion or so of plane purchases and leases in the next few years, what will happen to these ratios and their net profit? Well, that's one of the reasons it's down at five times <laughs> PE, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Joe's right. <clears throat> Sorry, I think I think Joe's right. There's plenty in the market who agree that this stock looks really cheap. But the question is, I think there's two questions. The, the first question is, how much does all the reputational stuff hit their profits? So, you know, they have to run better call centres. They have to put better food on the planes. They have to do fewer cancellations, more refunds to customers. So that that's going to hit the profits. And then there's this question of the leases. Now, the leases, it, it, it's not over the next few years. It's over the next decade, decade and a half, really. Um, so, Qantas says it can absorb that, keep paying dividends, keep doing buybacks, uh, and its financial position is pretty strong. But the one thing I think we forget about Qantas, and it, you know, fair enough in the last few years, but the, it's traditionally been a cyclical business. Airlines are cyclical businesses. They rise and fall with the economy. So... And the other, the other question, the other thing about Qantas is competition because uh, my son had a piece on Channel 9 News the other night about how much extra competition is now in the market and you get there are four people flying to, from Melbourne to Gold Coast now. Yeah. Uh, Rex, Bonza, uh, Jetstar and... Virgin. Uh, and Virgin. 
and prices are cheap. You know, yeah. like it was seventy. I think he said it was seventy nine bucks to fly to Gold Coast from Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, Bonza is changing the the market a bit. Yeah, I in think. certain and Rex is yeah. too. I mean, that's quite. And that, I don't think yeah. that competition is going to go away for a while. Uh, I don't know. It does tend to. T- it does comp- tend to. Competition does tend to go away. <laughs> yeah, Australia, yeah, Australia. That's, absolutely. I think we've got time for one more. Which one? Which one do you want to do? Um, all right. Last question. Ryan asks. Big fan of the show. Thanks for your ongoing insightful commentary on all things financial. My question relates to the high inflation environment we're in and alternative measures to tackle it. Are there not other measures that the government could? T- take to tackle inflation that will be more effective considering the singular blunt tool that the RBA toolkit contains. A short-term increase to super contributions would at least leave money in individuals' future hands. Are there any other fiscal measures which could be taken to combat high inflation? Well, this is a perennial question. Yeah. uh, And everyone wants to know this, and the answer is yes, there are, but they're not going to be used. Well, Jim Chalmers... Uh, spoke at the ASIC forum yesterday, and he said, "Actually, we are. We we've knocked a half a percentage point off inflation with some of our measures, like childcare subsidies and some other subsidies that they've put in place." So, Jim's point is that we are doing stuff. Now, the question is, what else does he need to do? No, but but they're cutting. Yes, they're they're reducing the cost of some of these services. Yes, which reduces the price of them, which tends to reduce inflation, but it increases demand. Yeah, it, yeah. it operates. Those those measures do do both ways. Yes, they actually true. are uh, operating or working against the RBA. Yeah. I mean, what Ryan's talking about is doing something to reduce demand. Yeah. What about the super contributions idea? This is a bit of a perennial too. Yeah, I know, but they're not going to do it. No, I I know. I mean, they as we keep saying, the government's terrific at giving people money. But they're really, really bad at taking it away. Yeah. The one thing about the super con- contributions thing is, yes, it would. Uh, uh, a, isn't it funny how we always run to super to solve everything <laughs> in this in this country? It's a good example of the, the the influence of the super sector. But B, would it actually help in the way? I mean, it, would it help in the way intended? This is a perennial question. I mean, everyone wants to know uh, things other than interest rates. Uh, that might might uh, slow the economy down. You, I mean, uh, you, you were saying that Jim Chalmers sa- uh, said something at the ASIC yeah, forum. Yeah, I mean, Jim Chalmers was saying we have done our bit to, to – we have taken other fiscal measures, childcare subsidies and that sort of stuff, and we've knocked about half a percentage point off inflation. Is that enough? Um, could they do more? No, but the thing is that, the, the, that yes, he's reduced inflation by cutting the price of some things yep. or subsidising them. Yeah. Uh, but that works the other way as well. It increases demand for them. Yeah. Um, so, he's, he, you know, they're actually working against the RBA. That what we're talking about with super here is to take money out of people's pockets. Yes. In the short term. Yes. And the reason that people like the super solution is that it reduces people's spending now, but it stays their money. Yeah. It doesn't actually uh, – it's not an increase in tax that yeah. just goes to the government. Yeah. For them to waste. But, but imagine going to a low-income household and say, we're going to take more super off you. But that's the point. No, the governments aren't going to do that. No, that's right. So the only reason, the only way it works is if the Reserve Bank does it. Yeah. Because they're independent and nobody votes them in or out. Yes, true, you know, true. So anyway, uh, 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 last, last thing to say, isn't it funny how we always run back to superannuation to solve everything in this country? It's, uh, it is generally the honeypot. Anyway. It is. 
Okay, well, that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. Um, so if you've got a question, send it to us at themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. I'm Alan Cole, founder of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. 